Forgive me. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look this morning at verses 6 through 20. I'll remind you where we've been. Habakkuk opens with uh, the prophet Habakkuk looking around and seeing the sin of God's people and crying out to God, like, God, how long can you let all of this go on? Do something about it. And God says, okay, I'm going to send the Babylonians to invade you and destroy you. And Habakkuk is maybe not thrilled with that reply. To him, maybe that seems like the solution is worse than the problem. So Habakkuk asks God again, like, Lord, how can that be the answer? Like, how can the answer be that someone worse than us is going to come to judge us? And God reminds Habakkuk that the righteous will live by faith. That's where verse 6 is going to pick up for us this morning. So this is verse 6. Uh, let me just remind you, the, um, it says, shall not all these, that's where we're going to start, all these are all of the people who have suffered under the reign of the wicked, who have suffered under the Babylonians who have invaded. So this is where our passage starts this morning, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, the Babylonians, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The Lord and the, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory." The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? 
For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. These are sobering words from our Lord this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand them. Father, we thank you for hard words. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would send your spirit to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds, that you would teach us, that you would correct us, that you would show us ourselves. And Lord, we pray that you would show us Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. There is a question that has been hanging over the opening chapters of the book of Habakkuk. It was implicit in the first section we looked at a few weeks ago. It was explicit in the section we looked at last week, and it is in verse 13. Lord, how long will you be silent while the wicked swallow up the righteous? How long will you be silent while the wicked swallow up the righteous? The verses I just read are God's response to that question. This is God's answer. How long will I be silent? This is God's answer to that question. And so verse 6 begins what in the ancient world was called a taunt song. Uh, That's literally the kind of poetry this is. It's called a taunt song, and really the closest thing we have to it is singing na-na-na-na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye, at the end of a basketball game. That is functionally what God is doing here. We had some other chants as well. It wasn't just the na-na-na-na song. You know, sometimes we would clap and say, drive home safely. Y'all done that one? Or or like the dreaded, like overrated. Y'all, this happened, right? Maybe I'm the the only person that liked to mock my opponents in basketball. Not my opponents, I was just in the stands. But (laughs) That's what's happening here. This is God responding to the wickedness of Babylon. God is taunting the wicked. And it's amazing, if you actually look at it, who is singing is not God himself singing. It is the survivors of the atrocities of the wicked who have survived and been raised back up by God and in the strength of his power. They are singing and mocking their tormentors and their oppressors and their invaders. Friends, this song sounds harsh. And it seems like something we should teach our kids not to do. We don't want to mock the losers, even if we do it at basketball games and it's kind of fun. This song is a resource that God has given to his suffering people. It is a resource to remind them that evil does not win. And it is a resource to remind them that God's love for them 
has teeth. God's love for his people has teeth. This song is meant to shape us. This song is meant to form us as God's people. You see, friends, when the Bible denounces something, when God in his word condemns something or forbids something or pronounces judgment on something, it not only shows us God's heart, it not only shows us what he loves and what he hates, it is inviting us as God's people to do two things. It is inviting us, first of all, to look at our own hearts. If we see a reflection of our own hearts in these things that God hates, we are called to turn away from those things and to repent. But the second thing we're called to do is not just to stop doing the wrong thing. We are called as God's people to walk in its opposite. We are called to pursue the very opposite of that thing. So here's an example from the Ten Commandments. The Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. That's pretty straightforward. You shall not murder. You shall not take the life of a person who bears God's image. However, if you just stop at you shall not murder and think that is the sole responsibility you have towards other people, that's a pretty low bar. If you're murdering, you stop, but other than that, you're good. No, that's not the point at all. It's not just that we don't murder, it's that God's people are those who promote life. We promote the flourishing of everyone from the womb to the tomb. We want to see life flourish, those who are made in God's image. So we don't just not murder, we are called to be people who care for life, care for all who bear God's image and pursue their flourishing and their goodness. You're also called, I think, in the sixth commandment to not make people want to murder you, which is something I remind my children of occasionally. We turn away from wickedness, we pursue its opposite. This passage has in it five denunciations, five pronouncements of judgment on wickedness. And we're going to walk through each of those quickly, thinking about not only what it is that God is denouncing that the Babylonians are doing, but thinking about what it might reflect of our, of our own hearts and what it might mean for us to live in faithfulness. Here's the first one. It comes in verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Verse 8 details some of Babylon's crimes against people who bear God's image and the earth itself. They have plundered many nations. They have blood on their hands and they have done violence to the earth and to cities and those who inhabit them. And what God says in verse 7 is that Babylon, in their strength, thought they were taking freely. Like no one could stop them, but what they were actually doing was piling up debt. And what God was going to do is call for that debt to be paid. The conquered, the vanquished by Babylon would rise up and demand that the debt be paid, and not only paid, but paid up with interest. That was what was really 
happening when Babylon thought they were taking so freely. And so their folly turned back upon the foolish. Let's think about our own hearts here for a moment. Babylon was operating on what we might call a scarcity mindset. And a scarcity mindset divides the world into winners and losers. That means if I'm going to gain, I have to take something away from you. It's a zero-sum game. If that is the way you are perceiving the world, that my gain is your loss or your gain is my loss, then what that does is it makes the world full of competition. And it means that our hearts are constantly going to be set towards bitterness that we don't have more. Or envy at what other people have. Or if we have power and resources, we are going to be tempted to oppress those with less power and less resources. Because that means more for us. Friends, a scarcity mindset is not what the Lord God, the creator of all, would have his people have. Instead, I believe God is calling us to an abundance mindset, where your gain is also my gain because your flourishing is good for all of us, where my gain is meant not only for me to enjoy blessings and to enjoy uh, privileges, but my gain is to bless you, just like God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. That's an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset. A few years ago, I read this fascinating sociological study that was published in a book called The Paradox of Generosity uh, by a a Christian sociologist uh, whose name is Christian Smith. And what this study found was that the most content and the most happy people in the world are those who give the most. Like, like the most as a, a percentage of income, not the most as, uh, you know, quantity of dollars given. The most content and happy people were those who gave the most, and the most miserable people in the study were those who were focused on accumulating possessions and hoarding it and stingily grasping towards it. And what they found, because they isolated all these variables, because he's just an amazing sociologist, is that it's not just a correlation. It's not just that people are happier because they have the ability to give more. What they found was the giving itself brought happiness. The giving itself brought contentment with one's possessions. And also the hoarding and the clinging and the grasping actually brought misery. Guys, this is profound. Because what that means for us is that like Babylon, grabbing all that we can and keeping it for ourselves is the surest path to misery in this life and the next that there is. We are made for abundance. We are made to share what we have, not to take all we can get. We are made in God's image to be blessed that we might be a blessing. It's amazing. It's true. So let's look at the second woe. It comes to us in verse 9. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house 
And then it goes down a little bit to say, to be safe. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to be safe, to be out of harm's way. See, what Babylon is doing and what we see here in this song is Babylon is seeking security in their strength and in their wealth. And because they are seeking security in those things, they will do anything to get those things. But verse 10 tells us that Babylon is misguided because there is no security to be found in their strength or in their wealth. Instead, they are going to receive only shame. And in a sobering word, it says, by cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. That is profound. I mean, what God is saying there is that because Babylon has exploited and harmed those that bear the image of God, they themselves have forfeited their right to bear God's image. Violence is not forgotten by God. Violence is not overlooked. God is not silent in the face of violence. He sees everything that is happening here, and he remembers everything. And I think this calls us as God's people this morning to think about where do we find security? Where are we looking for security? That is what Babylon was doing. They were looking for it in their wealth or in their power. And God is calling us this morning to think about where do we find security? There are various places we might find security. We might find it in our relationships. We might find it in wealth. We might find it in power or achievement. We might even find it in thinking that if we can just be good enough, things will sort of go our way, that our obedience itself becomes a way of seeking security because it becomes a way of controlling our lives. Friends, if you see that in your own heart, if you see a temptation to find security outside of the security that is offered to you in Christ, you are called this morning by God to turn away from it. If you are finding security in wealth, you are called to turn away from it because objectively, you won't find it. Not just even in your experience, which you'll never have enough to actually feel secure. Objectively, you will never actually be secure in your wealth or your relationships or your achievements or your obedience or your power. The only true security God's people have is their security in Christ. That takes us to the third woe which comes in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. What God is saying here is Babylon has built their wealth and their splendor and their empire on bloodshed. Which means no matter how impressive it looks, no matter how glorious it looks against the other ancient kingdoms, at the end of the day, it is functionally just makeup on a corpse. You see, the earth is not made to be full of the glory of Babylon or of the glory of any empire. The earth is made to be filled with 
God's glory, which is what verse 14 tells us. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I think it's important for us that we don't fast forward past this because we think we're in a time of progress when people no longer act or live in this sort of way, and it's just not true. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in world history. We are not outgrowing violence and injustice as a people. And so part of what this means for us as God's people is that we must turn away from an indifference to injustice that doesn't directly affect us. We are called to care about injustice inflicted upon those who bear God's image. One writer, Becky Pippert, says that indifference is actually the final form of hatred. As God's people, we cannot be indifferent to injustice, to suffering, to pain, to oppression. As God's people, we are called to be justice people who pursue and care about justice everywhere we have the ability to act and everywhere we have the ability to influence. We are called to be justice people, seeking the flourishing and the right treatment of those who are made in God's image. When we do that, that is a picture of the world as it was meant to be. The Old Testament word for that is shalom. It's this picture not only of peace, which is how we normally translate it, but of flourishing and goodness permeating the creation. When we are people that care about justice, we are people that care about shalom, the presence of flourishing and goodness for all. That's the third woe. Here's the fourth, verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. What this woe is getting at is that Babylon is exploiting people. And it is not only exploiting people, it is actually exploiting the earth itself. You see it in verse 17 when it talks about the violence done to Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon had been clear-cut by Babylon. They had done violence not only to people, they had done violence to the creation. And what God says to them is that the violence they have done to others, the shame they have inflicted on others, will actually be inflicted upon them. In fact, the cup of the Lord's wrath, we see in verse 16, will be handed to them with a command to drink it to the dregs. We talked about the cup of the Lord's wrath uh, a few weeks ago as well, that this comes from Psalm 75, and it's this picture of a cup that contains all of God's anger and wrath over sin and evil and injustice in the world. And what God is saying is, Babylon, you made people drink in order to exploit them. Well, you are going to drink a cup as well, and that cup is the cup of God's wrath. And there's two things I briefly want to mention as we think about this woe. The first one is simply this. God does not tolerate abuse 
of his creation. That is not something God is here for. God made Adam and Eve in the garden. He made them in his image and he made them with a purpose that they would fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over the creation. But dominion is not the same thing as domination. God's people are called to care about the world that God made. We are called as his people to be stewards of the world he has made. And that doesn't mean we treat the creation like it is human. It means we treat the creation like we are human. We are made to be stewards of God's good earth. Here's the second point. God does not tolerate the abuse or the exploitation of people at all. Full stop. When people are abused, people who bear God's image, those who abuse them, like Babylon, forfeit their right to bear God's image. And if you're here this morning and you have experienced abuse or you feel as if you have been exploited, know that God knows that. God has seen that. God is aware of that and God hates what happened to you even more than you do. And part of what God is doing even here in this song is he is promising you that justice will come even if justice is slow or denied in this time. God does not tolerate abuse of people who bear his image. And friends, that takes us to the final woe in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, or to a stone, arise. Babylon is worshiping and trusting in idols, idols of wood and metal. And what does God say to those who would worship idols that do not speak? He says in verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. The earth should be silent. God is not silent. Like, that's the amazing thing here is we get the answer back to the question from verse 13. The idols are silent, but the Lord God is not. The earth is meant to be silent. God is the one who speaks. He is not silent. This is his word against idolatry and evil and wickedness as committed by the Babylonians. Idolatry replaces love for the creator with love for something he has given us as a gift. That is ultimately what idolatry is about. It is about rejecting the giver and asking for and seeking after the gift. And in the ancient world, it actually looked like carving something out of wood or carving something out of metal or stone and putting it on your mantle and bowing down to it. For us, idolatry is much more subtle. Idolatry is any time we seek the gift but reject the giver. When we seek approval, when we seek money, when we seek security, when we seek whatever, and we do that because we are looking for our ultimate hope and security and 
approval in those things, we are guilty of idolatry. In Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says greed is idolatry because greed seeks security in wealth and rejects God himself. And the point here is that we can make idols even of good things. And that's what's so insidious about idolatry. We can make our kids idols and the way that they act or grow up or their achievements. We try to find our ultimate meaning and purpose in. And when we do that, not only will we crush them with the weight of our expectations, we are putting on them a weight they were never meant to bear. And when we've done that, when we've made an idol even of good things, of a gift that God has given, the point here is that repentance does not mean that we hate those things. If you've made an idol of your children, repenting of that idol does not mean you are indifferent towards your children. It's not about learning to love them less. It is about learning to love them rightly. And part of the way we do that is what one pastor calls the expulsive power of a new affection. Not to be confused with the explosive power of a new affection. The expulsive, a power that expels, uh, and the expulsive power of a new affection. And his point is, as we grasp the gospel, as we grasp the depth of God's love for us and God's concern for us in Christ, our hearts get rewired. We learn to love God anew, and that love ultimately is what drives idols out of our hearts, a love for God born out of his love for us. This song, all of these verses, verses 6 to 20, this song reminds us that evil doesn't win, This song reminds us that God will judge Babylon and all wickedness in the world. This song is meant to shape us as God's people for godly living in a world that is complex and difficult and broken. But there's one other thing I want us to see here that I think is profound and amazing. This song was written to shape and form Jesus. Here's what I mean, because I'm getting a lot of furrowed brows. Uh, One pastor puts it this way, a theologian puts it this way. He says, as one who read the Old Testament scriptures, Jesus learned of his sufferings and his glory. The Holy Spirit aiding Christ's mental and spiritual faculties brought to life the words of God that foreordained Christ's death. However, those same scriptures also anticipated his glory, which enabled Jesus to march triumphantly to the cross, knowing that his end was his beginning, a glorious transition from weakness to power. These Old Testament scriptures were written first, For Jesus, and only then for his people. That was a long quote. Here's the point. When we read in the Bible something that demonstrates for us the sufferings of the one who was to come, when we read in the Old Testament statements about the glory of the future king, or when we read in the Old Testament statements of God's judgment on the wicked, 
Those words were written first for Jesus to read and only second for us, his people. Friends, this will change the way you read the Old Testament. What was it like for Jesus in his human nature to read the words of Habakkuk 2? What is it like for Jesus to look at these verses and to realize that when he goes to the cross, he will become all of these things? In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, He made him to be sin who had no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin on the cross. All of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the judgment that you see here is what Jesus experienced on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is regarded as the most wicked, unjust, exploitative idolater in history. On the cross, Jesus reads this and knows that's what he is going towards. Jesus reads this and knows he will suffer all of these judgments on the cross to the fullest extent. Friends, on the cross, Jesus was plundered. On the cross, Jesus was overwhelmed with violence. His nakedness was exposed. He was put to open shame and he drank the cup of God's judgment to the dregs. And he did all of that so that we, his people, don't have to suffer God's judgment. Jesus paid it all for us. And friends, part of what this reminds us, a part of what this teaches us is that God's love is not abstract. God's love is not theoretical. God's love is not just a warm, fuzzy sentiment like God loves you. God's love has teeth. No one knows that. No one understands that more than Jesus. Because on the cross, he experienced it. The full teeth of God's love. And this is the kind of love that drives idols out of our hearts. This is the kind of love that when we understand it and when we grasp it, will leave us speechless. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. For him. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that when we read these words, we are struck by the harshness of them. We are struck by the seriousness with which you take sin and wickedness. Father, I pray that as we read these words, they would read us as well, that you would show us our hearts, that you would show us any trace of these sins or evils or wickedness. And if we see them, Lord, would you help us to turn from them and to walk in faith and repentance and obedience. Father, we thank you that on the cross, Jesus took all of the punishment that we deserved. On the cross, Jesus atoned for all of our sin, past, present, and future. Father, we thank you that on the cross, Jesus reminded us that your love has teeth. Lord, even now, drive our idols from our hearts. Help us to love you. Shape that love in us. 
And Lord, even now as we come to the table, we pray that you would shape that love in us, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in what Jesus suffered and did on our behalf that we might not have to suffer your wrath. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.